Once more, Luke chapter 19, beginning in verse 11. As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell them to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. He said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling 10 of his servants, he gave them 10 minas and said to them, engage in business until I come. But his, servant, but his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came before him saying, Lord, your mina has made 10 minas more. And he said to him, well done, good servant, because you have been faithful in a very little you shall have authority over 10 cities. And the second came saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, and you are to be over five cities. Then another came saying, Lord, here is your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief for I was afraid of you because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. He said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank? And at my coming, I might've collected it with interest. And he said to those who stood by, take the mina from him and give it to the one who has the 10 minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has 10 minas. I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine who do not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. Thus far the reading of God's word, let's go to the Lord now together and pray. Heavenly Father, we bow your hearts, we bow our hearts today before the greatness of your name, asking that you would grant us your grace and give us your help as we open up this passage. Lord, thank you that we have your word in our own tongue. Thank you, Lord, for giving us the scriptures in our language to show us the way of life. Uh, Lord, we, we rejoice that they show us Christ, that they testify of his glory, of his saving power, that they show us our need, our spiritual condition. Lord, thank you that the scriptures have the words of, of, of eternal life. They are able to save men from death. And God, we are thankful also that 
Faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. And Lord, that, that encourages our hearts because we are men of weak and feeble faith. We believe and, and at the same time, we have so much room to cry, Lord, help our unbelief. God, we also think of those who have yet to come to a saving knowledge of Christ and to put their trust in him, who have yet to, to taste and see that the Lord is good. And we pray for these. God, we pray that you would give us all attentive hearts, give us ears that would receive the truth with humility that would respond with obedience and with faith. God, I pray that you would refresh us, that you would establish our hearts in the hearing of your word. And we ask this all in Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you look at the very first few words of our passage for today, you'll see that Luke draws this important connection between our text for today and the passage that we looked at last week. It says that it was as they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. You have this growing entourage following the Lord Jesus and they are sizing up everything that they are seeing, uh, everything that they're hearing him say. Jesus has just spoken about salvation arriving today to the house of Zacchaeus. And now he, he's on the outskirts of Jerusalem and the crowd, can, they can hardly wait. They are beginning to connect all of these dots or so they, they think that they are. There's a clue in Jesus's words that not all is as they imagine, where it says they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. And Jesus makes it clear in this passage that follows that that supposition was an erroneous one. They were operating on the basis of a faulty supposition. And there are a couple of points of error that Luke crystallizes for us right at the very beginning. Right at the very beginning, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Luke draws our attention to a, a couple of things here. First in the word, appear. He says that they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear. The, the disciples can see everything taking shape, everything that they long for. To their eyes, it's all coming together. The king uh, this promised Messiah, he is making his way into Jerusalem. He's less than, than a day's journey now. He, 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 you can walk right into Jerusalem. So it won't be long now before the kingdom of God appears. Of course, they're, they're still looking for something that they can see with their own two eyes, something they can, they can measure with what they take in visibly. 
the promised Messiah. They want to see him, of course, routing out all of their Roman overlords, their occupiers. They want to see Christ sitting on David's throne. And this is despite, of course, what he has already said uh, in chapter 17. He said, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. Nor will they say, look, here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. And then second, you have the word immediately. They suppose that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. In their mind, all of their messianic hopes were on the verge of fulfillment. And we can't be too hard on them. You can see why they would arrive at a conclusion like this, what with Jesus going around making the pronouncements that he did. Today, salvation has come to this house. The, uh, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. You take statements like that, you see Christ making his way into Jerusalem, this growing band of followers, and it's not hard to see why their hopes would have been running high, why they would have been eager to, to see this kind of liberation that for so long the people of Israel had, had, had desired to see the arrival of the kingdom of God and all that that would affect in the world. Of course, they've drawn the wrong conclusions. Uh, they had what some have described today as an overrealized eschatology. They thought more was going to happen sooner than it actually did. And they had these wrong-headed assumptions and expectations about how and when the kingdom of God would come and Jesus comes to correct that. It was on account of these mistaken ways of thinking that he tells them the parable that we have at hand. And this connection between what they are anticipating and the story that Jesus tells is very important. It provides the context for the parable and it helps to inform our interpretation of it and our application of it. We'll see more of why the, the framing of the parable is so important to our understanding of it as we make our way through it. But first look at verse 12. Jesus begins this parable by saying this, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Now that may sound a little bit unusual to us. That, that, that's not language that is familiar to us and to our cultural context, but for Jesus's audience, this was familiar ground. Christ likens himself here to a nobleman, someone who goes out into a distant land to receive a kingdom. In the Roman Empire, this would have been not at all unusual to have someone like this, someone who was born of, of noble birth, born of noble lineage, no doubt born of royal blood, to be granted land far away and to go and stake it out as his own land over which he would rule and govern as a kind of vassal king. And Jesus uses this 
this familiar system, this familiar territory for his first century audience to provide the setting for this parable. A nobleman goes into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Now, already the notion of a far country provides in this context a very crucial, necessary point of contrast to the immediacy of the kingdom that this crowd is hanging their hopes on. The nobleman goes out into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom. He is going to be away this text would suggest to us for quite some time. So already you can see the way this would have served to perhaps temper their enthusiasm a bit as they thought about the prospect of the kingdom of God's arrival in the world. Now, as we said already, Jesus says in other places, uh, he, he talks about the present reality of the kingdom of God in the world. He, he says the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. That was his answer to those who asked him when the kingdom of God would come. He says, well, well your whole understanding of this is wrong. You're, you're, you're looking at something that you can take in with your eyes and you can see and the kingdom of God isn't coming like that. The kingdom of God is already in the midst of you. He said the kingdom of God is come, that it's at hand. It's something that has broken into the world. And at the same time, as this text affirms, we do not yet see the full extent of it. We don't yet see the full extent of Christ's victorious power and reign. All that uh, the consummation of the kingdom of God is going to bring to the world. And so what do we do? Well, Pastors and theologians try to reach for a language where we can pull together the teaching of the scripture and we say things like, well, the kingdom of God is already and it's not yet. Both are true. We affirm and we confess what Jesus says, that the kingdom of God is here. It's in the midst of us. And at the same time, we, we pray, for example, in accordance with the pattern that Christ taught us. Your kingdom come. We pray for the, for the, the full inbreaking and the, the consummation of all that Christ wrought on the cross. This nobleman portrays both of those biblical dynamics, both of those biblical truths. He is noble by virtue of his birth, by virtue of his descent, and yet... He has to go out to the far country to receive for himself the kingdom that is his, that belongs to him, and then return. And that is what the disciples are missing in their belief system. They had failed to account for this two-stage understanding of the progress of the kingdom of God in the world. Now, Brothers and sisters, it's one thing for us to say, aha, okay, I get it. I understand now. The kingdom of God isn't coming in ways that can be observed. It, it, it doesn't come by, by political shows of force and um, 
routing out occupiers and that sort of thing. It happens in the hearts of men. It, it happens through the preaching of the gospel. And then the end will come when Christ comes to sit on his glorious throne and judge the living and the dead. Then we'll see the consummation. But the question that this text really presents to us is what about now? What about now? This is a so what kind of parable. What I want to impress upon your, help, your hearts with God's help is that this passage exists not so much to lay out an eschatological framework, not to tease our imaginations about the end times, but to teach us how to live today, to teach us how to think about the world we live in today. That's what Jesus is doing with his disciples. They're amped up. They're excited about all that is going to come with the kingdom. Well, Jesus comes to correct them, but he doesn't just come to say, here you have a flowchart of redemptive history. Here's what you need to know to understand everything you need to understand about the kingdom. Rather, he says, here is how I want you to think about that interadvental time, the time between my incarnation and when I return, when the nobleman returns as king, the second coming. Look at verse 13, if you will. Speaking of the nobleman, it says this, calling 10 of his servants, he gave them 10 minas and said to them, engage in business until I come. There you have the charge. There you have your charge, dear ones, until Christ comes. The nobleman distributes 10 minas. That is about three or four months worth of wages. Not a tremendous sum, but not insignificant either. He gives a mina to each of his 10 servants and he says, devote yourself to this end. Make a return on what has been given to you until I return until I return. We're gonna come back to that thought in a moment. First, we see in verse 14 that it says, but his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. Now, children, notice that there is a distinction in the Bible here in the text. In our passage, we have servants on the one hand and then there are citizens on the other. What do the citizens do? The citizens reject the nobleman's claim to the crown. They reject him as king. In fact, their hostility is so fierce that they send out this delegation to make it known. They, they wanna get ahead of the game and say, we do not submit to your lordship. Now, there, there's a historical context working in the background here. Nearly everyone alive at the time that this was written would have been aware of. In the year 4 BC, Herod the great son, Archelaus, went to Rome to be confirmed as king. He went to, be, to, to receive for himself a kingdom and then to rule 
over Judea. It was in the, that very same year, though, that he murdered more than 3,000 Jews on the night of the Passover. So as you can imagine, that led to quite an uproar on the part of the Jewish people. And they did exactly what you see here. They said, we don't want this man to rule over us. They sent out a delegation to protest his rule and Archelaus was named Ethnarch, a leader of a, of a smaller ethnic minority instead of king. His kingship was rejected. Jesus knows there will be those who reject him. He knows there will be those who reject his lordship and his authority. He knows there will be those who live in the world over which he rules and reigns that hate him. And that is still true. That is still true today. Brothers and sisters, one of the implications of that is that you have those who love and serve Jesus Christ, the King, living in the midst of those who don't. That has a direct bearing on our lives. As a direct bearing on our lives today. It will always be this way. Those living in the world who reject the kingship of Jesus Christ. Now turn your attention back to the servants, if you will, in verse 15. It says there, when he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know what they had gained by doing business. Now first notice those words there, when he returned, having received the kingdom. The nobleman goes out and it's not when he returns that he receives the kingdom, but when he goes out. You see the significance of that? We'll consider in just a moment what is going to happen at the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. But before we get there, notice how it is underscored in this passage, the nobleman receives the kingdom in the foreign land, out in the far country, not when he returns. He is not waiting to be crowned upon his return. In fact, that helps, to help, that helps us understand the citizen's response in verse 14. We don't want this man to reign over us. He is already a king. So it is not when he returns that his kingdom is established, but when he goes out. For Christ, it was his resurrection and his ascension that signaled his kingship and the taking up of his throne. Listen to Ephesians chapter one and verse 19. This is from Paul's prayer there. He prays that we might know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him up from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. 
And he put how much? How many things? All things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all and all. Amen and amen. Jesus is not waiting to inherit the throne. He isn't waiting to reign. He reigns today. Now, we come to the real heart of the text. And Christ's emphasis here is so helpful. It is so clarifying as we think about our lives today. Look at what Jesus does, brothers and sisters. Again, he sees the disciples' exuberance over the coming of the kingdom, their zeal, we could say, not according to knowledge. And what does he do? What is the relationship, for example, between verse 11, the conclusion that the crowd has arrived at, that the kingdom of God is about to appear immediately, and all that follows in verses 12 to 27. Jesus sees their enthusiasm and their excitement about the kingdom of God, and having told them he's going to go away and then return, he says in effect this, He's, he's come back. He says, now tell me what you have done while I have been away. I want to know what you have gained by doing business in my absence. Do you see the shift of attention? The shift of emphasis. Our Lord is saying in so many words, you have your, your burdens and your concerns. You have trials, no doubt. You have your Roman overlords, and you want these problems resolved. You're eager for your quick fix. But how does Jesus deal with the concerns? He redirects their attention away from those pressing concerns over when the kingdom of God will come, And he directs them toward the need for faithfulness while we await his return and the fullness of the kingdom's glory. He enjoins them to fix their attention on stewarding well those things that you have been trusted with while you await the consummation of all that the Lord Jesus has wrought. His concern again, has little to do with outlining a system of eschatology or delineating the nature of the end times. There are no doubt uh, implications and inferences that we can draw from texts like this, but that's not the keynote. Where does the emphasis lay? It is on the business Jesus' disciples are to do in his absence with the gifts that they've been given faithful service to the master. So let's look at the servants. We come to the first servant. The first came before him saying, Lord, your mina has made 10 minas more. And he said to him, well done, good servant. Because you have been faithful in a very little, you shall have authority over 10 cities a tenfold return on the part of the the servant. 
Then you, you come to the second servant. Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, and you are to be over five cities. Again, there's a tremendous return and a tremendous response on the part of the master, on the part of the king. Now, I've implied it already, but there are two things we learn from, 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 from this interchange. First, there will be a reckoning. There will be a reckoning when Christ returns. A day will come when it's time to settle accounts. And there's an expectation we see here on the part of Christ that we should be using the gifts and the talents and the resources that he has granted to us and that we should be doing so for the sake of the master. Not for our own sake, but for the sake of our king, for the sake of his kingdom, for the sake of his glory. Our lives are to be lived in the faithful service of God. Is that the way that we think, brothers and sisters? Is that the way that you conceive of, of, of whatever it is that has been entrusted to you as resources to be invested and, dare I say, exploited for the sake of the kingdom of God? Perhaps this would be a clearer way of getting at the answer. What would those around us who watch and observe our lives, who listen to the interests of our hearts and hear the, the cares and concerns of our lives say that we live for? What would others say we live for? There is a real responsibility we have to use the resources God has given us for the glory of God and the good of others, especially their eternal good especially their eternal good. They are not there for us to just sit on and use for ourselves. And don't think here merely in terms of material resources. Certainly that is included. It is not excluded after all. That, that's the, the, the springboard that the Lord Jesus uses here with, with the minas. Those things are, are to be used maximally for the glory of God, but there is so much more. What about our time? What about our relationships? What about the people the Lord has, has, has strategically placed around us? What about the neighborhood that he has planted us in, the relationships, the unique giftings and skills God has given you that can be marshaled for kingdom purposes, all that God has granted to you. How can it be used for the glory of God and the good of mankind? I was reading Charles Spurgeon this afternoon on this passage, and I wanna to read to you what he said. I had to clip it out. He says, you must trade for him. And for him, everything must, done well, must be done well. At the present time, no trading pays better than the mission to the Congo or to the hill tribes of India. You see, he is, he is surveying the world 
the places that, that God has given him inroads to, and he's looking at the resources that the Lord has been pleased to, to grant to him. He goes on, large dividends come also from dealings with the poorest of the poor in the slums and as much from widows and orphans who are in extreme destitution. When men have to lay down their lives for the Lord Jesus, after a life languished away with fever, the returns are amazing. Where the need is greatest, our Lord receives most glory. It is left to you to judge what you can do, how you can do it, and where you will do it. Do that which will most surely win souls and that which will best establish your Lord's kingdom. Exercise your very best judgment and get into that line of holy service in which you can bring in the largest revenue for your glorious master. God help us in this. Get into that line of holy service in which you can bring in the largest revenue for your glorious master. The Christian life is not about a kind of personal salvation from sin that has no effect on our lives. The gospel brings with it the hope of everlasting life, but it is not a gospel that leaves us unchanged. Jesus is coming back and when he does, he will sit on his glorious throne. Until he does, we are to conceive of ourselves as servants commissioned by our king to make a profit on his assets. You notice how I put that, how we must understand things. We are to conceive of ourselves as servants commissioned by our king to make a profit on his assets for the Apostle Paul says, what do you have that you did not receive? It's all his. It all belongs to him. What do they say upon the master's return in the parable? Lord, your mina has made 10 minas more. Your mina. Is that the way that you look at what you have in your bank account, in your home, at the talents and resources and strengths and so on, the Lord has been pleased to grant to you. Lord, what do I have that I did not receive? Help me, God, help me to use it in faithful service to Christ. That's how you go about life in the interim. We don't know when Christ will return. Deuteronomy 29, 29, the secret things belong to the Lord, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever that we, we may do all the words of this law. Here we have our revealed duties until he comes. Engage in business. Engage in business until I come. It is required of stewards that they be found faithful. So there will be a reckoning. Second, there will be rewards. There will be real rewards and blessings. The Savior will dismiss, dis, dispense on the day of judgment to his servants. The master says to the first, because you have been faithful in a very little, you shall have authority over 10 cities. 10 cities, 
staggering to see just a glimpse of the Savior's generosity to his servant, reigning together with him. You shall have authority over 10 cities. Now, just step back from this and and consider that you have a king speaking to a servant. Really, to catch the full import of of this, you you have to realize that the word is a slave. It's a bondservant. I can't help but but mention Matthew's account here where he he records Jesus as saying, enter in to the joy of your master. Now, can you imagine a king saying to a slave, enter into the joy of your master? What king would say that to a slave? Maybe go, go fetch me a cup of tea, but enter into my joy Come reign with me. This king does. This king does. Second Timothy chapter two and verse 11. The saying is trustworthy for if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. Christ will render to each one according to his works, not so that we might be justified by our works. No one will ever be justified by their works or service to God. If you will be right with God, you will be right with him through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. It is his redeeming grace and that alone that has the power to set you free from the guilt and the tyranny of sin, you must look and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the only hope you have. He lived the sinless life you have not lived. He died the death you deserve to live. Trust in him, you will be saved. Not only that, but he will draw you into his house and he will make you useful to him. He will make you useful to the master, a servant of Christ, a slave to righteousness. Paul says in Romans 6, and we come to the third servant. There are are 10 servants in this parable, but no need to, to plod your way through all of them. It's almost like the, the story fast forwards to the very end here, as if to say, well, there are 10 servants, but really there are only two kinds. There are faithful servants, and then there are what you see in verse 21. Then another came saying, Lord, Here is your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief, for I was afraid of you because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. To boil it all down, he says, you're unethical in your business practices. You're a hard man. I can't endure living under your reign. This is one of those times where it's helpful to bear in mind the nature of parables. A parable, some have said, is is an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. 
They take something that we can grab hold of, something that's familiar to us, and they use that as a point of reference to convey spiritual truths. In the first century, a, a, a harsh, exacting nobleman would have been something that many people would have been familiar with. It was a point of contact they could readily identify with. This is not to say Jesus is harsh and exacting. It's like what you find in Matthew 24 and verse 43, where Jesus likens his return to that of a thief in the night. It's not a moral comparison. He's talking about the unexpected nature of his return. Well, here the nobleman's reputation, at least as he conceives of it, leaves this man, this third servant, paralyzed by the options that lay before him. If he takes the money and he is successful in his business ventures, he knows it's just gonna all be taken away. On the other hand, if he tries to invest what he's been given and he fails, he's going to, he's going to be held accountable by the severe man. And so he feels himself to be in this lose-lose kind of situation. And the nobleman says, well, let's just suppose just for a minute that that was true in terms of my business reputation. He says, I'm going to judge you on the basis of what you believe. He says, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank? And at my coming, I might have collected it with interest. At the very least, he could have gained some interest by putting it in the bank. Let it have some passive income there. Wouldn't have required anything of him. And he takes the mina, the, the, the king now takes the mina and he gives it to the one with the 10. Now, three lessons as we conclude. Three different applications for three different groups of people that we see in this, this text. And I want you to consider which of these groups of people you find yourself in today. Everyone in this room is in one of these three groups. Number one, first the king says, I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. This is the first group Rewards will be given to faithful stewards. And, and the point of emphasis here is not on the amount of yield that the servant makes, but on faithfulness. You notice that in both of the, the in the account of the first two servants, they're both commended. They're both rewarded. The king doesn't come back and chastise the second servant for not bringing in as much as the first. There's a diversity of giftings and capacities and abilities and so on. But the point here stands to, to everyone who has more will be given. Rewards will be given to 
to faithful servants of Christ, those who love him and serve him. And again, I wanna emphasize the broader context this parable is set in. What prompts this teaching? What prompts the Lord Jesus to bring the parable forward? Well, it's the disciples longing to have their troubles eliminated. Their desire for the glory of the kingdom to to come in and to overwhelm their day-to-day sorrows and afflictions. That's what sets this this text in its larger context. We're talking about life in the meanwhile. Life today. Life while we wait on Jesus to return. And we often find ourselves wanting that quick fix. Wanting an immediate answer, wanting speedy relief. This is what Jesus encourages us to keep before us faithful service while we wait on his return. Make some return on what has been entrusted to you. Let your thinking, your way of life be informed by kingdom enterprises. Second, and this is a word to those who are in the place of that third servant. Jesus, or the master in the the parable says, from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This parallels what you find in chapter eight and verse 18 of Luke, where it says, take care then how you hear For to the one who has, more will be given. And from the one who has not, even what he thinks he has will be taken away. Even what he thinks he has. This third servant was counted as one. He was counted as a servant. But dear ones, he was a false servant. He was a false servant. In just a minute, we're going to look at Christ's dealings with his enemies, but not all of his opponents are out there, if you will. Some of them exist among his own. Some of them wear the garb of Christ's servants, but they don't serve him as king. In 1777, during the American Revolution, Benjamin Franklin and John Adams went to Paris to lobby for French support. There was a third member who was also on their team, Dr. Edward Bancroft. He was a physician in New England and a very close friend of Franklin's. He was also a secretary to Benjamin Franklin. What Franklin and Adams did not know was that Bancroft was a British spy and he was raking in 500 pounds a month from the crown. Anything that he learned that was of any significance whatsoever was known in London within just a matter of days. He was by all appearances a patriot, but in actual fact, he loved and served another. 
I want to call to your attention the attitude of this third servant toward the master. How does he understand the one that he, quote, serves? Well, he looks at him as someone who is tyrannical and unjust, as wicked and cruel, as someone to cower beneath. He does not see him as gracious. He doesn't look at him as kind and benevolent, but he is. The master is all of those things and more. The other servants knew that. In fact, you you can catch a sense of their delight as they relish the opportunity to present to the king all that they have made in his absence, but not this servant. He doesn't truly serve the king. In fact, he doesn't even know him. And so he doesn't receive a reward In fact, it's worse than that. Even what he has is taken away. Dear ones, for those who who rub shoulders with Christ, who have dealings with him, who may even be able to say in one respect, I know the king, but don't trust him. But don't love him. Don't serve him and live for him. There will be loss. There will be rejection. And then finally, there will be judgment for those who reject the king. Verse 27, but as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. It is a picture of the eternal judgment found in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 7. It says there, the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. There is a temptation that preachers of the word and really anyone who desires to share the good news of the gospel with the lost face to want to leave our hearers on some positive note of encouragement to want to end on an upbeat, something that is buoyant and bright. Christ did not feel that pressure. He leaves us on a severe, sober note that leaves ringing in our ears the destiny of those who reject him as king. If you were not yet counted, as one of Christ's happy servants, there is nothing more needful than this, to carefully, soberly take this to heart and consider its application to your soul. Let's pray. Almighty God, Eternal Father,
Lord, we humble our hearts before you. Lord, we, we marvel that you have deigned to show so great a salvation to such great sinners. Lord, we give you praise. We worship you. We adore your name for rescuing us from that awful end to which every mortal man is headed apart from the saving grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, what an awesome thing it is to be called as your own. God, what a privilege it is of serving our redeeming King to, to be useful in your house. Father, we confess that we often become so consumed with our own troubles and find ourselves groaning for relief when you have called us to be active, to, to engage in business until your son returns, to put our hand to the plow and to give ourselves over to what will never pass away, the proclamation of Christ's glorious name. Lord, I pray that the word we have heard today would encourage our hearts. God, may it serve to encourage us to press each other on to love and good works. I pray for those who find themselves in the position of that third servant and who remain deceived because of the associations that they have with Christ's own, Lord, because of their familiarity with his ways, but who have yet to call on him for salvation, who have yet to, to submit to his lordship and reign. God, work in their hearts today, we pray. Today is the day of salvation, your word declares. Rescue them, O God. Work also, Lord, even in those who have utterly rejected you, who today would join in and say, we don't want this man to reign over us. Lord, nothing is too hard for you. Have mercy on them, O God. Nothing is too hard for you, Lord. I pray that their souls would be snatched out of the fire. For the glory of your great name, we pray, amen.